Hey, hey, Housers, welcome back to another episode of On The Way Home, or welcome if it's your first episode. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Michael Braithwaite. It's a great honor to host this wonderful podcast where we get to speak to the best of the brightest from across the country, around the world, uh, chatting about housing, homelessness, health, um, employment, food insecurity, everything that kind of links to poverty and the reduction of that. Uh, and we speak to so many brilliant and passionate people, experts in the field, people who have lived expertise that have been through it uh, and come through the other side and take the time to share and help us change things moving forward. It's a lot of fun and very interesting. And each week we have a new and unique guest. This podcast is brought to you by two groups, by my organization, Blue Door, and our friends at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. You'll find a lot about Blue Door out at bluedoor.ca. That is our website. You can find out the wonderful work that over 100 people at Blue Door are doing in the areas of housing, health, and employment in the areas of York Region, Durham, and Peel. And you can find out a lot more about the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness at caeh.ca. Uh, they're doing all sorts of wonderful work. They have a big conference coming up. Uh, in November, and the guest today will actually be at that conference. Uh, so she's giving us a little taste of what she's going to be presenting there. I encourage you to go to that. And they do much, much more. They do great advocacy work across the country um, and a lot of training as well. So check them out. So bluedoor.ca or caeh.ca. Let's talk about today's guest. We have Rebecca Signer, and Rebecca is from BC Housing. BC Housing has a housing research center. She's the manager of research there. And we have a wonderful conversation. Um, she talks, tells us a little bit about BC Housing, her journey into the work. And then we talk about uh, some of the work that the research data that BC Housing, the research center does, and how they put together these toolkits to help individuals, say, or organizations like mine or others on the West Coast and in BC Housing work with communities to uh, make sure when they're bringing housing projects into the communities, it's done with as little pushback as possible. One of the things we talk about, it's very interesting to me, is what uh, the role of design is in um, reducing the pushback, the nimbyism, say, in a neighborhood where people can be involved and look at things around lighting um, and and how the building is going to be designed. Is it going to fit in? What amenities it can have to involve the community? And it really is about community immersion. Um, and so everyone feels like this is a part of their community and it, there's opportunities for people to interact. So we talk a little bit about that. She gives some great examples of the work BC Housing has done in doing just that with their design and how they work with uh, communities to really uh, make it a welcoming place and, and, and change minds and, and attitudes around this. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's go to that conversation now. Thanks so much for the time today to come on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we ask the same question to everyone when they come on the podcast, uh, because it's an important one, especially to a podcast of this nature. And that is, what does home mean to you? Well, as a researcher, I looked into what others had said, and um, so I'm well prepared. Um, so to me, home is about safety and somewhere where you feel safe, um, both physically safe and safe to be yourself. And to me, home isn't just your shelter, but extends to your neighborhood and where your home's located. And it's important to feel included in your neighborhood, to feel safe at home. 
Uh, for me, um, feeling at home in my neighborhood includes having some faces I recognize and say hi to when I'm out and uh, maybe even running into a friend and having a quick chat and um, feeling welcome at the uh, nearby stores and community centers and maybe even having staff um, recognize us and taking part in neighborhood events um, or recreational activities so we get to know the people in our area. Um, and yeah, I think not feeling included in your neighborhood may mean you don't feel safe in your home. So that's why I think uh, both are so important. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I think quite often when we talk about housing and affordable housing, we forget to talk about the community around it, right? It's much more than those four walls and a roof, as you said, it's a place you feel safe. But also what we found uh, many times by failing forward in a sense, is that when we put people into housing and we don't do the aftercare to help them uh, get to know their community and be a part of it, the housing part doesn't work because they don't feel like they're in, you know, it's an inclusive community and they end up back, they end up back in emergency shelters. So well put. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, I don't know when you were four or five, you're growing up and at career day, if someone said, what, what do you want to do with your life? Did you picture this? And if not, <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your journey into the sector, into this work. I probably wasn't far off in terms of what I pictured, but um, I studied food security issues in university, which was, um, of course, closely linked to housing affordability. And when I started my career, I was working for a social enterprise uh, research organization. I was doing quantitative and qualitative research on food security, income assistance, um, also known as social assistance in other parts of the country and affordability issues, homeless counts. And to be honest, uh, when I was offered a position as manager of research at BC Housing 15 years ago, um, I was a bit uncertain about shifting gears to focus on just specifically housing and leaving my work on income assistance and child poverty and food security behind. Uh, but what I found is I haven't left those behind. Um, they're so in interconnected with housing. And of course, um, through my work, I've expanded, expanded and deepened my understanding of housing and homelessness issues. So really getting to understand the impacts of supportive housing for people who have experienced homelessness or the issues that are facing um, women's transition housing and supports programs and um, even housing construction related issues uh, such as a modular construction for affordable and, uh, and supportive housing. And I guess I'll just add, I feel very lucky because as a researcher, even though I've been doing this job for 15 years, um, I still learn something new every day because housing's so complex. Um, and so there's so much to learn. So uh, that's something I really like about my job. That's something I like about this podcast is I learn from people like you every time I talk with new people on the pod each week. I am grateful for that. Thank you for taking us on that journey. And we're grateful you're doing the work you're doing. Let's talk about BC Housing, uh, great reputation, doing incredible work on the West Coast. What can, in, in broad strokes, can you tell us a little bit about BC Housing and then more importantly, the work that you're doing in the Housing Research Center? Like, Why is it there and, and what exactly does that center do? Yeah, okay. So um, BC Housing is a crown corporation and it develops and administers a wide range of programs and housing, um, as well as licensing residential builders and consumer protections for homeowners. 
And so we assist about 120,000 households in 300 communities across BC. And that assistance includes emergency shelter and outreach programs, um, temporary and permanent housing for women and children fleeing violence, um, home, home adaptations for seniors and people with um, disabilities. Um, it includes both independent and supportive subsidized housing. And there's also rental assistance in the private rental market. And um, BC Housing works in partnership with um, many different stakeholders, including nonprofit um, providers, provincial health authorities, other ministries, um, other levels of government. And, uh, and that's to develop the housing options in the housing system in BC. And um, I work in BC Housing's research center. Um, so the re research center conducts research that informs housing solutions to improve the affordability and the quality of housing in BC. And uh, BC Housing uh, values data-driven uh, decision-making and supports the sector through research that um, advances, advances knowledge and lessons learned and solutions. Um, so part of my job is making sure that we can um, get the data to do the data-driven approach to decision-making. Um, so to enable this, I've um, been involved in setting up administrative databases to collect information about who we're serving and how they're being served um, to make sure the programs are accountable and um, meeting their goals. And uh, likewise, um, I do more qualitative research as well, and um, that helps us look at what's working well, what's not working so well, and lessons learned with our programs to ensure the best possible outcomes. And uh, I also get to work on um, tools that help support the um, housing providers and other stakeholders within the housing sector. Um, so for example, as we've talked about a little bit already, um, an issue faced by many housing providers when they're developing and operating non-market housing um, is they face community um, opposition or concerns. And despite the clear need for affordable um, housing and non-market housing, when trying to develop um, non-market housing, neighbors surrounding a proposed housing development can raise concerns about, um, may, may, may raise concerns, I guess I should say, um, impacts on property values, noise, uh, loitering, and overcrowding in the neighborhood. Um, crime is also something that comes up. And in some cases, the opposition might take the form of petitions or media coverage or um, concerns raised at local hearings, but there can also be legal challenges. And um, these days, false information can spread really easily through social media. And uh, so what, something we've done as the research center is we've created some tools to help the nonprofit providers and the other stakeholders trying to create um, non-market housing um, respond to those concerns. And um, so we've created the Community Acceptance of Non-Market Housing Toolkit, and it includes ideas to um, and strategies to prevent and to, um, and to address community concerns. Um, so we've also developed quite a few um, tools to support the toolkit. So um, we have case studies of supportive housing sites that faced opposition during development, but have since developed really positive relationships with their neighbors. So we can learn from those experiences. And um, another um, 
document we have to support the toolkit is uh, we've done an exploration of the impacts of non-market housing on surrounding property values. And spoiler alert, um, the study found that non-market housing um, does not have a negative uh, impact on surrounding property values. And in some cases, the non-market housing may be replacing land that was previously having a negative impact on the area and um, by transforming it. So it's become a beautiful non-market housing site that blends into the neighborhood. And uh, we've done some resident outcome evaluations to um, better understand the impacts and demonstrate accountability for government investments in, in non-market housing and supportive housing. And um, again, like what we're finding is um, many residents are having really positive outcomes. So finding housing stability, um, making connections with friends and family, um, participating in recreational activities, reporting um, improved health and, and access to health as well. So relying more on um, primary health care rather than more costly emergency health care. And some people are even um, pursuing opportunities for employment, education, and volunteering. And I guess another point is that the non-market housing of supportive uh, sorry, the, the um, non-market housing and supportive housing, it, it doesn't just benefit um, the residents who live there. Um, we also created the community benefits of supportive housing document. Um, and, and this is a document that, that provides evidence-based responses to a lot of the questions that are commonly heard when um, non-market housing is being developed. Um, and uh, talks about you know, increased local spending, um, reduced government savings, and of course, um, reduced homelessness and uh, increased housing stability. Um, and uh, yeah, these tools and evaluations can be used in lots of different ways. I mean, they can be used proactively. Uh, for example, resident outcome evaluation results may be used for public awareness campaigns. Um, so to help the public better understand the need and um, impacts of, of supportive housing, even before a site's proposed in the neighborhood or community. And of course, they can be used to help respond to the concerns that are raised when there is um, non-market housing in development. And again, it's just with that evidence-based um, responses to the concerns that are being raised. That's amazing and, and, and so helpful, I think, to so many. Um... Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. You touched upon, well, I mean, you talked a lot about community acceptance and when um, you announce a housing project happening in many neighborhoods, uh, what is referred to as an ME, not in my backyard, but there is some community pushback sometimes. Uh, recently, where I'm from, uh, where I work up in York region, uh, the region was looking to rebuild uh, the men's housing project that uh, we currently run up in East Gwillimbury in Aurora, and there was 
there was some community pushback. And I think so, sometimes those loudest voices get a lot of the attention um, and they, they were on the negative side of things. But you're, you, you talked about some tools to help people gain some of that to people who will are willing to listen, gain some community acceptance and, and, and provide, hey, this is what's happened in the past. It has been fairly positive. But one of the things that we want to talk about today is the role of design. And helping with community uh, acceptance. What the, what the heck does how does design help of a of a project or building help with uh, bringing people around? Yeah, um, actually, design factors are a common concern that can be raised by neighbors. Um, they want to make sure that there's uh, the building's going to fit into the neighborhood. Um, protection of privacy, lighting issues, uh, parking issues, um, land density, or yeah, and like yeah, the lot coverage and yeah, density issues, and um, yeah, again, just making sure that the land uses fits in with with what's going on in the rest of the neighborhood and. So design can play a really important role in preventing and addressing neighborhood concerns about non-market housing. Um, so some examples of ways that we could do this is um, I'm just being very careful about the exterior design because uh, the exteriors and landscaping can reinforce differences uh, rather than similarities. So we want to make sure that non-market housing doesn't have an institutional look. And remembering to include spaces for residents to gather on site is important design consideration. Um, for example, to avoid one of those concerns that we heard earlier about loitering um, and also creating spaces, maybe indoors or outdoors to include, in, to include community events uh, on the site um, so that people, neighbors and residents can get to know each other. Um, and designing a site that provides increased amenities for the whole neighborhood, um, not just for residents, can be a way to gain community acceptance and, and create these more inclusive neighborhoods. Um, in some cases, design of proposed housing can be a way to engage neighbors in the development process and give them an opportunity to be heard. And when neighbors are given the opportunity for input in the design, um, they may become more informed about the development and, um, and the, they're going to feel included in, in the process. And, you know, that's instead of having it feel like that it's being imposed upon them. Yeah, I mean, they maybe that, that creates some buy-in, ownership of the project, etc. Um, yeah, it's fascinating and, and so true what you say. I think sometimes when, when we get pushback, people will say, "Well, how do we know um, you're not going to design this, you know, monstrosity or something that looks really terrible or, or that is doesn't fit in the neighborhood?" And you know, the easy response to that too is any building has to follow the zoning bylaws of the of the area where it will fit in, and, and of course. Mm -hmm fits the neighborhood. But I, I love what you're saying about, hey, let's get community buy-in. Let's talk about all these different pieces that make people um, a little more accepting of what's happening uh, in their neighborhood and that everyone's included. Do you have examples of buildings that have done this and, and it's really helped with people accepting uh, these projects in their communities? Yeah, so um, we definitely have some examples of where design has played a, a role in helping to develop um, those positive relationships and uh, community, ultimately community acceptance. Um, so two examples that uh, come to mind are Cardington and Apartments in Kelowna and um, Timber Grove, which is in Surrey. 
And um, Cardington Apartments faced significant resistance to the development during um, the development phase, but it has been operational for over 10 years now and has developed really positive relationships. And that happened really early on after the building opened. Um, and again, design just played a really key part in that. So the, um, the exterior of the building actually has a uh, community or public art feature um, designed into the exterior of the building. And with this design feature, the, um, the, the Cardington Apartments has been part of local art tours and it just really helps the, um, the, the building become part of the fabric of the community and neighborhood. And like I mentioned before, having those community amenities, Cardington has done that as well. So they have a coffee shop um, that was built into, into the building on the first floor and it's a social enterprise and it provides work experience um, opportunities uh, for residents in the building. But um, it's also a place where neighbors and residents can get to know each other. So, you know, neighbors are going to be stopping in to um, get their coffee on their breaks or on their way into work. And um, yeah, and they'll be it's just a nice opportunity for people to to meet each other and get to know each other and just build those more inclusive communities. Um, yeah, Timber Grove is an example of how design um, can also play a role in the community acceptance. Um, but I guess before I get into the role of design, um, Timber Grove actually has a really interesting backstory, uh, even before we get to the, yeah, to that design part. Um, so Timber Grove was, um, was developed using hybrid construction. Um, so it involved modular construction and stick build construction. And the modular units were actually athletes housing in the um, 2010 Winter Olympics in Whistler. So the units um, after the Olympics were transported to Surrey and um, the two units were put together to create a self-contained unit that became the units in Timber Grove. Um, and I'd say like some of the concerns that related to design in some cases, um, you know, like these, these design concerns can be accommodated and Timber Grove was an example of where that could happen. Um, so in, in this case, the design concerns were about, again, the look of the building and will it fit into the neighborhood and um, privacy for neighbors in the next building. And I guess important background is also, this was the first long-term supportive housing um, building that was, was going to be developed in, um, in Surrey. So there was a lot of questions and, and people wanted more information and, and there was definitely some resistance. Um, so to address those design concerns, the um, Timber Grove has beautiful wood features um, that are used on the exterior of the building and really help it, the site blend into the neighborhood. Um, it, it looks like the other buildings in the neighborhood and it's very beautiful. Um, and to respond to the neighbors in the building next door about privacy issues, um, they, in this case, they were able to move in the design process, move the structure closer to a greenway that was on the other side, creating more space between the two buildings and uh, added a fence and some trees to again, just create a little bit more privacy for the two buildings. And um, in this case, again, the parking lot was in the design process could be moved. And so it, we were able to move it again to between the two buildings, just creating a little bit more, more space. And um, yeah, and while these types of changes can't be 
done in all cases. Um, where they can be done, they're, they're just such a great opportunity for neighbors to get input, to feel heard, get to understand the development that's going on and know who to talk to. And uh, yeah, it just goes a long way in terms of achieving community acceptance. It absolutely does. And, you know, inclusive neighborhoods include people experiencing homelessness and people with different housing needs. And you and the team, uh, through the use of the toolkits, are really helping to make that happen and make that kind of seamless. So really, really appreciate it. If people want to see some of the work you're doing, look back at previous work or research or hear more about this, where could they go? Uh, so the um, BC Housing has a research center library. Um, so we have a research library on our website um, where we, many of the reports I mentioned today are posted. Um, and so it's bchousing.org backslash research dash center. Um, and uh, we also have a newsletter, um, which you can subscribe to to stay informed about new research that's coming out. And so you can find that on our website as well to get subscribed. And uh, I'll also be presenting on this topic at the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness Conference in Halifax in November. And I hope you can make it to the session. It's November 9th at 1.30. And it would be great to have an in-person discussion on this topic as well. And I have some pictures that I can share to describe all these design features. Yeah, very much so. You just gave a little bit of a taste today. I encourage people to go to the full session. You'll, you'll learn so much. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for all you do. Uh, research and data is huge and pushing uh, everyone's mission forward to end homelessness across this country. Um, and you and your team are a large part of that. So thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to share our tools. Well, we'll see you in Halifax and hopefully again on the way home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.